You are listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It is so much more than radio. It is your community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon and I hope you'll stay with me for the next hour's tour of the arts around the state. This week we are expanding beyond the Mid-Missouri art scene to visit with the Missouri Arts Council's four featured May artists – Two painters, a poet, and a concert pianist. As always, there was far too much ground to cover in just 60 minutes. So with no time to waste, let's head straight out and start today by going west along I-70. Warrensburg-based painter Gary Cadwallader wants his paintings to be extroverts, to reach out to the viewer and engage them with their complexity, abundant detail and visual rewards. His artistic goal is to create paintings that don't let you leave the room without coming back for another look. He is definitely not someone who wants his works to match your drapes and sofa. He wants to create the window with a glorious view in front of which you position the sofa. And I am so happy to have Gary on the show today to take us on an audio tour of his visual world. Good morning, Gary. Hi. How are you doing? I love that you describe your works as extroverts. Are you an extrovert too? No, no, absolutely not. (laughs) So you get it all out of your system through your paintings. That's right. <laughs> if you painted introvert works, how different would they be? Would they just be very kind of pastel-y and quiet? Um, I don't know about that. I would say they would be minimalist. Well, you spent your working career mostly away from your art, working as a computer programmer until around 10 years ago when you returned to the subject. You studied at university 40 years previously. And I have to say, seeing your fabulously abundant, voluptuously verdant works, and then thinking of you trapped in front of a computer screen makes my insides contract in panic. How did you hold so much art inside you for 40 years? (laughs) Well, um, I think... Computer programming is about as, um, I suppose, artistic is the right word, as you can get at business. Um, and I did a lot of writing short stories and things like that. And uh, finally, I just went back to my first love. So what made you return to painting 10 years ago? I think it was just frustration with the business world. Um it was getting boring, I have to say that. <laughs> <laughs> and then I very vividly remember I was sitting on the couch and nobody was around. I'm just sitting there and all of a sudden the thought goes into my head that I'm going to give painting a real try. And I immediately got up and started looking for materials. And I uh, happened to find some watercolor paper and some unopened box of watercolors And so I started with watercolor. But I mean, you did your degree at UMKC in art. So at that time, when you first graduated, did you think, oh, well, this was fun. Now I'm going to do something else and earn some money. Or did you try and pursue a career in art and it just 
was too difficult financially? Honestly, I think the college experience kind of took me to a stage of burnout. I wanted to do something else. And then, of course, at a certain point, I wanted to get married, have kids and that whole thing. So then I needed a steady income. So watercolour. Many years ago, I hosted shows for the Missouri Watercolour Society as I was director of the Columbia Art League. And I was endlessly mesmerised by the beauty and the detail of so many of the works. They were phenomenal. And at that time, I heard about the incredibly prestigious Watercolour USA show, a show which within a few years of starting to paint again, you had had two paintings accepted into and you won an award, which is Pretty phenomenal. Tell me about chasing the goal of being in that specific show. Okay, uh, that's in, they hold that show in Springfield at the Springfield Art Museum. And I had gone down there to see it uh, shortly after I started to paint again. And th- at that time, I was having a lot of difficulty. I couldn't, I couldn't figure this art thing out at all. And I went down there and saw their show, and there was in particular, several people that I just was amazed by. And I wanted to be in a show with them. And and so I just kept plugging away and uh, just trying to get better every year. And I, I tried to get in, I think, four or five years before I finally got in Watercolor USA. I mean, that, that is a really difficult show to get into. Particularly, you haven't painted for 40 years and suddenly you think, oh, I'll get in this show. I'll pick up some watercolor paint. I mean, was that your medium at college? Was that a love you returned to or or were you kind of learning from scratch? (laughs) I was learning from scratch. I did everything. (laughs) I did all acrylic painting at UMKC. I either did acrylic painting or I also was doing a lot of printmaking there. I think along the way I had taken like maybe a six-week course at a community college or something in watercolor. and It was all right. I didn't do anything spectacular. I just started started painting and, and really couldn't figure it out until, honestly, I started doing a rose bush that was in my front yard. I started to paint this rose bush, and I thought, I'm just going to put in every single leaf that I see, and there was, you know, a hundred of them, <laughs> and for some reason, that that clicked in my head and everything kind of started working from there. I love seeing how artists develop and change their voice over time. How would you say your voice has changed over the past decade? Well, I'm starting to do more figurative work. This last year, I did a, a, large, a large project which covered five panels, and each panel was four feet by six feet. And it had to do with, uh, in Kansas City, there's a program called Artist Inc., like INC. And we had to choose a one-year project, and this was mine, that I was going to develop this set of paintings that would stand in a semicircle. They wouldn't hang on the wall. And so for at least eight months, I've done nothing but paint in acrylic. So I, I wanted to ask you about this work in particular because I've, I've seen it online and it's, it's pretty phenomenal. It seems like a chain of consciousness, set of images and references. You have the Pink Panther, the Wicker Man, the winner of America's Top Model, Easter Island Head, Henry Rousseau uh, Model plus an AR-15, John Wick, Miley Cyrus, a woman in a COVID <laughs> face mask, Picasso, Coca-Cola, Gauguin, Botticelli, the Oscars. 
And then in the far right-hand side, your signature, which is dopey. <laughs> so what <laughs> is this all about? Well, it was kind of spontaneous. Um, I would say the one consistent thing would be that I would mix pop culture with things from art history. So the woman that's holding the AR-15 is uh, a takeoff on Henri Rousseau's painting called The Jungle, where there's a nude woman on a couch in the middle of the jungle. And he's surrounded by lions and tigers. And so that's where the Pink Panther came from. And then you'll see a lot of other pop culture references like uh, Miley Cyrus and then Picasso. So more art history things. But I mean, why Miley Cyrus? Why Coca-Cola? Why? Wh- how did, out of all of the potential pop culture that's out there, how did those things mm-hmm. make it into your painting? Uh, well, Miley, I just used her lips. It was a grimace. It was a face that she made on the cover of uh, Rolling Stone magazine. I think this was 2020. And it it just intrigued me. I just liked it. So I just chose only the lips to use. And yeah, <laughs> it's just kind of, what am I, what am I into today? <laughs> so it's almost like a collage of your thoughts of eight months of painting. Yeah, that's probably very true. <laughs> so what happens to it now? You have this work that's 20 feet long on five four foot wide panels that all belong together it's not like you can really sell them individually what's its future i don't know (laughs) people keep asking me um did i have a venue in mind and the answer is no i feel like if i tried to wait for a venue to come up where i could show this i'd never get it painted so my thing was i was going to finish it and it'll find a home at this point I'm convinced it'll find a home somewhere. And if it doesn't, my kids will get it. (laughs) (laughs) Whether they want it or not. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) So your next project is even bigger. You're planning a uh, a work that's 40 foot long and seven feet tall Mm -hmm. that sits in a full circle. So completely surrounds the viewer. Tell us about that one. Okay. Well, that, that kind of what the first project was supposed to be something like that. Um, I got to a stopping point at like panel five and it, it worked in a half circle. So I was convinced that that was finished. But then what I really wanted to do was a, a room where you would walk into the room and it would just surround the viewer. And so uh, the reason I wanted to go to seven feet tall because this stands on the floor. I wanted it to be above most people's heads. I mean, what is it? Is it another chain of consciousness, pop culture thought process? Or what are you planning for these panels? Probably. I I think it'll be more, a, more of an environment. Like, let's call it a jungle environment, let's say. And so there'll be a lot more trees and things surrounding you. And I'm kind of thinking about perhaps adding some audio to it, maybe with a motion detector so that if you walked by part of it where you would hear birds or something, maybe we could have an audio of birds playing. I am working with uh, the model that was in panel five. Uh, She and I work 
because of COVID, we started working together over the internet. This is the, the Botticelli model. Yeah. What I will do is tell her what I want. She'll get a photographer together. They'll take the pictures and send it to me, and then I pay them through PayPal. So that way, we're like, of course, COVID is getting, it's easing up maybe, but uh, at the time we started doing this, it was full-blown, everyone stay away. So, I mean, again, for for a, a work of this size, it's not something people would necessarily put in their home. It's really a work that's looking for a museum home. Right. Yeah, I'm thinking of it as an installation. So let's say I get a solo show at XYZ Gallery or Museum, and I will go in and set this up, and then there would be probably some of my regular paintings on the walls, but there would also be this thing that you could enter and just have it be a more intense experience, I guess. There is another work I want to ask you about before we close on your website, and it's called Refuge. It's an acrylic on canvas that is 60 inches wide by 48 inches high. And if it wasn't already sold, I would buy it. It is a forest (laughs) scene with foliage and ferns, a small waterfall on mushrooms in the foreground, a huge oak tree in the middle distance, and that kind of centers the work. And then from the back of the painting, there is this glorious ray of red light, and it's very Tolkien-esque. Tell me about this work. That whole thing goes back to my childhood. Let's say I'm 12 or 13 years old. I would ride my bike into the park, and there were all kinds of pine trees with branches that hung down very low, and you could crawl up underneath there, pull your bicycle up underneath there, and you could look out at the world and not be seen. There's an introvert thing for you. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so I kind of wanted to paint something like that. And I was walking down my driveway one day, and there's a big tree there, and the sun was setting behind this tree. And so it reminded me of that childhood experience. And it's at the uh, State Fair Community College now in the president's office. And the reason they liked it was because she felt the same way about being in the park and how it's kind of an idyllic place where you can look out at the world but not necessarily be seen. It is absolutely stunning. And I, I couldn't believe that you you only had $1,000 on it. I thought it was going to have an extra zero on it. <laughs> well, at the time I sold it, that was a good painting for me. That was a good price. So <laughs> yeah, it's beautiful. Well, you can see more of Gary Cadwallader's artworks on his website at garypaints.com. And if you are in the Warrensburg area, he has a studio on East Market Street. Gary, thank you for telling us about your works today. Thank you for having me. My next guest is Regina Willard, a contemporary Impressionist painter who lives in West Plains, Missouri, and describes her inspiration as the movement and rhythm of life's constant motion, and says that, for her, painting is the release of a language spoken with a brush. She teaches fabulously titled classes like Divine Bovine and Bold and Big Florals, and she's here this morning to tell us more about her work. Good morning, Regina. Good morning. Hello. How are you? I am well. Now, are you an artist who absolutely has to paint every day or do you do nothing for a few days and then paint nonstop for 36 hours? (laughs) You know, 
I used to paint every day and I realized I think sometimes I just need a break. I always tell people I need to kind of be quiet and just be still for a little while and to regroup. And I've, I've noticed the more that I paint, the more I need that time to be quiet, reflect and think. And I always tell my students when I'm teaching, you know, painting is thinking and an observation. And sometimes I just need to be quiet for a few days and observe things around me or kind of shuffle ideas through my head. I do sketch pretty much every day. I have a a sketchbook that I keep by my chair in my living room, and I have several downstairs in my studio. And I I doodle and I sketch, and I'm always drawing out ideas and writing out palette color combinations and things I want to try. So um, I'd like to say I paint every day, but I think I paint every day in my head. (laughs) Does that make sense? It may not be a paint on a brush to a canvas, but it definitely is my brain telling me and thinking what I need to be painting and doing and what's moving me at that moment. So yes. Do you paint in silence or do you paint to music, you know, you're an impressionist painter, music of the 19th century. What do you listen to? You know, I have a huge array of music. I like anything from Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin. I love Dean Martin. That man could read me the phone book and I'd be happy. (laughs) Um, I like anything right now. I love Billie Eilish right now. I like a little bit of rap, but when I'm really in the, what we call the artist, say the zone, I like it to be quiet. And my studio is downstairs. We have a whole living area downstairs. And my husband, about eight years ago, I looked at him. I said, you have three choices. You either buy me space, give me space, or rent me space. And he said, you can just have the downstairs. And I go, okay, thank you. So um, it's very quiet down there. And I sometimes just need peace. And that's when I'm stepping back from my canvas and I'm looking and I'm looking at all angles. I just don't like interruption. But I think probably the last few times I've finished two or three larger pieces, it's been completely quiet. So, yeah, I do. But again, I could listen to music, but I don't really need it. So you describe yourself as a contemporary impressionist. So tell me what that means to you. Well, I love Russian Impressionism, and I had some classes with some very great artists, actually current artists right now. I had Carolyn Anderson and Lori Putnam and Anne Blair Brown. And what I, it's not what I would consider, I was never taught. I never really had an education of art or did I go to college for art or painting. I'm self-taught, but I'm an avid learner, and I love to look at beautiful art, and I'm I gravitate towards paintings that have rhythm and movement. I like for them to look like a hot, mad mess when I'm standing within five inches of them. But if I step back five to 15 feet, it all just makes sense. And for me, that's kind of what contemporary is. It's I don't really have a a style. I want to say that it's more of an emotion and a feeling and an expression. And for me, when I paint... Um, I paint with my whole body. And I, when I say that, it's it's from my brain down my arm to the end of my hand to the end of my paintbrush. You know, it's a big stroke. And I'm like five foot three. So I'm sh- I'm vertically challenged. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you know, when I'm standing and I'm, you know, I'm holding my brush at Link's arm, you know, I don't I don't paint the eye of the fly. I'm holding my brush like a wand. 
and I, you know, I'm just moving it in all angles and I'm moving it from my shoulder to my elbow. So for me, my work, I think it's bolder. I think for me, contemporary impressionism is bolder. You write about how you fell in love with the medium of oil in your teens, which tells me you went to a school that really valued the arts as teens rarely have access to oil paints these days. Tell me about falling in love with oils. (laughs) You're going to love this. Um, (laughs) So I was 14, 15. I wasn't driving yet. And of course, we live in rural America, so it's, it's small town. But my mother would drive me 20, 25 minutes to a little town from our hometown, Mountain View. And there was this gentleman who was a retired state highway patrolman. And he'd went through the Bob Ross instructional teaching course in, I think, Raleigh, North Carolina. But anyway, he was giving classes on the Bob Ross technique. I had never painted in oil ever. But my mother, I mean, I had watercolor and acrylic and everything. And my mom said, I think you could do that. And I go, yeah, I think I could do that too. So she signed me up, bought me everything I needed. I, I was so blessed with parents who whatever I wanted as far as art supplies I got. And she took me over there. And I was the youngest one in that class. And I was 15 at the time. And I probably did that for about a year. And every month I would meet with him. And we would talk about color mixing, building a painting, mostly all landscapes, of course. But he was such a gentleman and so inviting, and I loved it. And he taught me how to use my brushes, how to take care of my brushes. But that's when I fell in love with it. I love the manipulation of oil paint. I like the thickness, the bright colors, and I love mixing color. Give me four colors and a palette knife, and I, I'll go to town. I love it. <laughs> do you still watch Bob Ross? You know, I do. Isn't that funny? And I... <laughs> I do. I re- if I see a commercial, I stop and I go, oh, there's my buddy. Yeah. <laughs> I so, love yeah. watching Bob Ross. It is so relaxing. I do. And, you know, he painted much differently in his early years than he did in his later years. So he's got quite the interesting life. But I, I think that just kind of flourished. And then I did that through my 15, 16, 17, 18. Of course, then, you know, you graduate, two years of college, get married, have kids. And it just... My urge to paint never left. It's always, it sat right on my shoulder going, you need to be painting. You need to be painting. And uh, up to eight years ago, we, I decided, you know what, I'm going to do it. it. There's no reason why I, I shouldn't do it. So I took off and I'm really happy about it. It's, it, it's come full circle in so many ways. You write that uh, you had a life-changing experience. And then after that, you decided you were going to paint. Yeah. Uh, My husband and I, we've been married for 30 years, celebrated that in March. We have two children. My oldest one is Jay and my youngest one, Jackson. Jackson was severely handicapped and he was uh, disabled. So he was a full-time job. That was my son. And we lost him uh, May of 2013. Actually, we just celebrated his eight-year passing this week. He is in heaven where he is right now. He'd never want to come back here. But we were so blessed by him and the people that came into our life because of what he needed. And it was our life. I mean, everything revolved around his needs. And my husband and I, we also own a business together. And and my husband worked and I stayed at home with Jackson and doctor's appointments and hospital stays. And, you know, when that final time come, I made a promise to myself that, I would not waste the time that I've been given. 
So I feel like it's been a blessing these last eight years because I now have this opportunity to spend time doing this thing that just, it, it just has to live in me and I have to take it out. And Jackson has allowed me now to do that. So I don't ever not pick up a brush and I don't ever say thank you. Oh, so when you look back over the last eight years of, of really starting to paint again in earnest, how has your body of work changed? How has your artistic voice developed over that eight years, would you say? You know, when I started and I decided I'm going to do this, I just, I just knew because I lived in the Ozarks, I'm going to paint landscapes. That is the furthest thing that I paint. <laughs> you would think that I would want to, but it doesn't appeal to me because I'd rather just be in nature and just be walking and looking at trees rather than painting them. But um, I think life and art are so related. And my life, I grew up on a farm. So when I started painting, I thought, you know, I'm going to gravitate towards what I know and what I love. And I love animals. I was raised on a farm and that was, that was what kept our, you know, household going. And so as I've kind of developed my style, I've realized I love, I like big brushstrokes. I like bold color. I like to mix, but I also truly, truly appreciate a living thing. I love florals. Um, I work part-time as a florist here in, in a local flower shop and I work one day a week, but I get to hold the most gorgeous, beautiful stems of flowers on my hand and I get to build arrangements, which I also have realized in the last eight years, I like building things with my hands. I love the progression of something. You start something and then you finish something. I love to watch things become something. And in my painting, I've realized my my style has evolved because I love the birth of it. And then I love when it becomes at the end. And I think animals and florals have just been my thing. They just make me happy when I paint them. Do you find it difficult to, to let go of them when somebody wants to buy them to sell them? Or are you happy sending them off into the world? Oh, you know, I have like three or four right now that I've had for a while and I could look at till the end of time. But no, I don't. I am so happy when someone looks at that piece of work and it just moves them. And I, I paint for me, but if someone walks in and says, I have to have that, I'll go, it's yours. You can have it. And I may, and I'm, you know, it's like my baby. I want to make sure it goes to a good home. <laughs> but people who usually collect my work, they like the movement and the color and the, the rhythm. Painting is a rhythm. It's like your heart beating. It's got to have a life to it and a, a living thing. And hopefully when they look at my work and they collect it, they see that. Well, you teach as well. You have a couple of classes coming up this summer. You do have a cow painting one in June and pet portraits in August. Where do students struggle the most when it comes to painting animals? <sighs> this is what I like to tell my, my students. Um, there is nothing you put on that canvas that you can't fix. It's just paint. But they have a hard time letting go and letting go by what I mean is they have this preconceived idea in their head as to what that painting is going to look like when it's finished. And what I teach them and I try to convey to them is, you know what, let that painting tell you what it needs. And 
we just had this idea that, you know, a cow looks like this and a dog looks like this. And, a, and I said, okay, you can't name it right off. You have to just paint the shapes and the color patterns. And then at the end, it'll be what you need it to be. So letting go of a preconceived idea of what a painting should be and look like is probably the hardest because we've been taught it at a really early age. It's not a ball, you know, it's not a circle or a square or a triangle. It's a ball or it's a house or, you know, it's a shape. And we claim it and name it too fast. So they have to kind of let go of that thought process. You'd be saying to me, like, what does that cow need, Diana? Is it an extra leg? Yeah. And you know what? If it has an extra leg, then (laughs) that's your cow. That's quite okay. (laughs) It can have three ears and two eyes. You know, that's okay. (laughs) You also do pet portraits, which I can imagine can be a little fraught. You know, we're all so enchanted with the beauty of our own pets, but your painterly eye might see them a little differently. Yeah. People love their pets. And here's the thing with a pet portrait class, which is much easier than any other portrait class. They know their animal. They know their characteristics. They know their little quirks and they know their language. You know, every animal has their own language with their owner. And I have them kind of list out, tell me about your pet. Tell me what he does, you know, say something. And we have this verbiage that we kind of go through, but I am really amazed at how they build on just knowing how their their pet doesn't speak a language. I mean, they have their own language, but they can't speak words. And I said, put your dog or your cat or your pet into words. How would you describe that pet? And I have I have so many great people who attend those classes and just like, I can't believe I just painted my dog. That's my dog. I go, yeah, that's your, I don't know your dog, but yeah, that's your dog. <laughs> but it's hard. And, and you know, they, they want it to be perfect. But here's the thing. There's beauty and imperfection. And we all have it. Everything is imperfect. And again, they have to let go of that perfection idea. Well, on that beautiful note, if you are interested in taking a class in painting divine bovines, Regina has a workshop coming up on Saturday, June the 12th, and a pet portrait class on Saturday, August the 7th, both at the Hones and Willard studio in West Plains, where she lives. You can find out more about those classes and see her artwork on her website at reginawillard.com. Regina, you are such a delight. Thank you so much for chatting with me this morning. Thank you. I was so honored and thrilled. Thank you. Whenever I was invited to read a bedtime story to my niece or friend's children, and I got to choose the book, I always chose a book that rhymed, Dr. Zeus or my all-time favorite Valerie Thomas's Winnie the Witch series. Not only were they invariably shorter, that was a bonus, but the flow and the bounce made them a much more delicious experience as a reader. My guest this morning describes rhyming as the dialect he speaks when writing a poem or telling a story on the way to a laugh or to a truth. And his love of poetry has earned him the title of Poet Laureate of Burns Mills, a small town around 30 miles southwest of St. Louis. And I am delighted to welcome poet, storyteller and illustrator Byron von Rosenberg to the show. Good morning, Byron. Good morning. How are you? I am well and delighted to have you on the show. So given how much you love rhyme, I wonder, do you find yourself spontaneously speaking in rhyme sometimes? Sometimes I'm caught (laughs) doing that. Um, In actual fact, my name is Byron. My wife's name is Sharon and our children are Ryan and Aaron. And I did all that before I even knew I was going to write poetry. (laughs) (laughs) 
Do you have a? Do you use like a rhyming dictionary sometimes, or is that cheating? I do use a rhyming dictionary. You know, the th- good thing about doing stories in rhyme is all I have to do is rhyme, and then the words seem to fit themselves together. They come to play, and they fit themselves together, and I find myself uh, writing a story that goes unexpected places or writing out a thought that I never really thought. My hand writes it before my mind thinks it when the words come to play. Sometimes you have a word and you think, I just, I can't find anything to rhyme with this. Then you're going to change course and think of a synonym. What the thesaurus is for. Um, I use a thesaurus when I can't find a suitable rhyme, or I'll just change the structure of the line, maybe bury the word that won't rhyme in the line and use another word to uh, end the line with. Well, let's back up a little from your current life as a predominantly a children's poet, given your catalogue of 11 plus children's books. But you started out with a degree in chemical engineering and a master's in human services. And then you spent 32 years working for the Boy Scouts of America. And it all seems a long way from the life of a poet. So tell us how you arrived at the world of poetry. It is a long way from from the life of a poet. Again, it's not something that... I expected to do. I actually began writing uh, when, rather a sad situation, my father was ill with Lou Gehrig's disease, and I said a prayer and wrote a poem, including him, and um, uh, it was uh, of such significance to me that I've continued to write, uh, I won't say every day anymore, I wrote every day, I must have must have been for 10 years at least, and then um, less often sometimes now, but... Uh, but it's always, uh, it's not always good poetry, but it's always good for me. And how did you go from writing poetry every day that was cathartic, that was good for you, to thinking, well, why don't I publish these? Well, the first time I knew I might have something special was when I was scoutmaster for a group of uh, young preteen and teenage boys, and I would recite one of my poems for the scoutmaster minute and when they started to look forward to that and laugh and be ready and you know say things like uh, oh boy this is going to be a good one (laughs) i kind of knew i had something special there because i mean what teenage boy wants to hear poems right yeah that's a hard audience (laughs) so it was it was uh it was great fun did their response change how you wrote or what you wrote? Were you gauging the laughs or their feedback and then writing accordingly? No, not at all. As I said, the words, when they come to play, all you have to do is be ready to play with them. Um, I tell students in schools that uh, it's really important to learn all the grammar and all the vocabulary and all the spelling that they can and to read all they can. And then write, because... The words become your friends, and all those difficult grammar rules and so forth, as they become a part of you, become your friends because they help you write a story. They help you when you want to write a story that it be the best you can do. And so when the words come to play, you just have to be ready to play with them. You just have to know they're going to come sometime or another and take time to let them come. You write that words have been fun for you since you were a boy making puns. Tell me about your exposure to poetry as a child. You know, I went to a 
a very good school, Isidore Newman in New Orleans. And uh, I, I don't really remember all the poetry that we learned there. You know, you studied all the classics and everything. The, the one poem I can remember writing, and I can remember it because my mother saved it, was a Mother's Day poem from third grade or something like that. And it rhymed pretty well. It wasn't uh, it wasn't one that I'd put in a book nowadays, but it impressed her enough, uh, you know, when I was an eight or nine year old for her to keep it all these years. So uh, my mom's pretty special besides my daughter and my and my wife. Uh, uh, she's one who inspires me a lot in my uh, my work. And just in talking with her, she has stories to tell and uh, they're pretty interesting. So, you know, as a guy, it's a fun thing to do to actually listen, <laughs> <laughs> which would lead me to uh, to reading this Two Cans in the Kitchen poem that uh, that you liked. Yes, go ahead. Let's have you read a couple of, of works for us. So Two Cans in the Kitchen, yeah. Yeah, I think Two Cans in the Kitchen is a good one to uh, segue into uh, what I just said. Okay, this is Two Cans in the Kitchen. There are two cans in the kitchen. I heard my wife just say, so I've got to fetch a net before they get away. I'll need to get a cage to keep them safe inside, but I can't find them anywhere. Where might those bright birds hide? I wasn't gone that long. There's no way they got too far. When I told my wife they're missing, she said, look in the car. Now that seemed like a very strange place to find a bird. But my wife has never lied to me, so I took her at her word. I said, I still can't find them. She said to look some more, and when I did, I stubbed my toe on two cans of tuna on the floor. And then the notion hit me like a tsunami slaps the sand. Just because I hear the words don't mean I understand. (laughs) Did that actually happen? Written from true life? You know, most of my poems are a combination of true life and maybe just a a phrase that somebody said to me and then just uh, sitting down and letting the words come to play. Like, for example, another one that my mother inspired, it's very short. Actually, her doctor inspired it. I went to the doctor, her doctor's visit with her once. And he said to her, well, your weight is stable. And I thought to myself, hmm, I bet I can do something with that. So here's what I wrote. It's very short. It's called Weight is Stable. I think my doctor thinks I eat like horses at a table. But does he mean one or all of them when he says my weight is stable? (laughs) So you see, sometimes it's just a real short thing. So your website is called I don't want to kiss a llama.com, which makes it pretty easy to remember. And that's also the title of one of your books. Tell us the history of that title. How did I come up with that title? Well, I really didn't. You see, that's uh, my wife and daughter inadvertently conspired to uh, to come up with that. I had a dream. And in the dream, I had a uh, I heard a phrase, our llamas are not camels. Now, I don't often hear things in my dreams, but I heard that. And so I wrote, got up and wrote it down, and I wrote a poem called Our Llamas Are Not Camels, which is okay. And I wrote a couple of other llama poems, and then we met some llamas and got spit on by some llamas and, you know, stuff like that. So when I uh, – my wife bought me a stuffed toy llama, you know, kind of as a joke. And I held it up to my daughter one day and said, Aaron, kiss the llama. <laughs> and straight away she said, 
I don't want to kiss a llama. And they were the perfect words. I mean, <laughs> it's kind of like you don't often hear a, um, a universal truth, but there it was. So I went and sat down and wrote the poem. It took me about 20 minutes, maybe half an hour. I read it to my wife. She pointed out one or two flaws in it, which, of course, I strenuously objected to and then realized that she was right and corrected them. And we have the poem that we have today. And when we decided to go into children's books instead of just... Uh, I was writing books of poetry. When he decided to go to picture books, that was the only one to do. And you can see it on my website. Uh, if you go to I don't want to kiss com on the home page, if you scroll down partway, um, a llama friend and I recite I don't want to kiss a llama. So you, I know you do, you read your poems at St. Louis Zoo and at Grant's Farm in Branson. So I'm, I'm wondering, you know, over the past years, we've all been locked down and you are somebody that feeds off energy and audiences. How has this past year been for you? How have you kept your muse alive during a year of lockdown? Uh, for the most part, I've done a lot of walking in my neighborhood, met some people that I, you know, I've lived near for 20 years and hadn't met and, uh, Gave away some books. Didn't really sell a lot of them this year. Worked on the website a lot. I think I made it a lot better. I'm not sure it's visited you know that much more, but it could happen. So um, lately, um, with the pandemic uh, changing a little bit, I've gone to a homeschool convention here in uh, St. Charles, uh, near where I live. And uh, I'm going to go to Texas for another one and... Uh, California for one and then I've gone down to Branson again because Branson's open. Well before we close you I mentioned in the intro that you are the poet laureate of Burns Mills. What does that entail? Do you have official duties? <laughs> well it doesn't really entail anything. It was really kind of a joke. Um, the truth of the story is well if I had read them this the poem that I think I'm going to read right now they probably never would have let me be the poet laureate. Um <laughs> But it took about five years of sort of asking every once in a while and a new mayor before they finally decided I could be Poet Laureate. <laughs> I got to write a poem, which they put on a plaque and put on the par- in the park, which is really pretty cool. And uh, so I get to go read that every once in a while. But um, what did I write? There's an outhouse in Burns Mill. Now, this may lose me my job, but it doesn't entail anything, really. Go for it. Except to write that one poem, and that was quite some time ago. And they haven't hired a new poet laureate, so I guess I'm still it. So here's there's an outhouse in Burns Mill, because there really was one that I saw on my walk. On the top of a hill here in Burns Mill, an ancient outhouse stands, where you can sit and look beyond to many far-off lands, to India and China, to Nome and Timbuktu, People's thoughts go wandering, and I find that mine do too. But as I peer into the vastness of those skies away out yonder, my contemplation's personal for its closer things I ponder. Indeed, the pressing question, the one thing I must know, ere I leave this rustic throne is, where'd the paper go? A perfect ending. Well, poet, illustrator, and storyteller Byron von Rosenberg's website is the easily rememberable I don't want to kiss a llama.com, where you can find all his books, videos, and a lot of photographs of llamas. Byron, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Thank you, Diana. It's been a pleasure.
The composer Robert Schumann was only 46 when he died in 1856. He left behind his composer and pianist wife, Clara Schumann, and a body of work that makes him one of the greatest composers of the Romantic era. But he was a complex man, who we would probably describe today as obsessive-compulsive, manic-depressive, and bipolar. His body of work was produced with extreme orderliness, 1840, leader. 1841, orchestral music, 1842, chamber music, 1843, oratorio. And some scholars would argue that there are signs of his bipolar disorder in his work. Others disagree. He is for sure a fascinating composer within the classical music canon. And my guest this morning is an internationally renowned award-winning concert pianist and is an enthusiastic performer and teacher of Robert Schumann's music and is a full-time collaborative pianist at Truman State University. She is Dr. Heijin Cho. Good morning, Heijin. Good morning, Diana. Thank you for having me today. I think many of us hear the names of these famous 18th and 19th century composers of classical music, and we rarely stop to think that they were fallible and strange humans, just like we are today. But remembering that that they were fallible makes their music seem more alive. Does the flesh and blood reality of a composer alter your interpretation of their work? Oh, thank you for your question. And I think you already know a lot about human because <laughs> that's a wonderful introduction. And for me, I don't think it's an overstatement that human's music is all about fantasy. So I think he lived in fantasy and he created fantasy. And human's music is very much related to the quality of fantasy that we can find in the novels of German romantics that he greatly admired. So his father was a book publisher and bookseller, so he was surrounded by a lot of novels by German romantics. And for him, so literature and music are interdependent arts. So novels of German romantics made him hallucinate, and he was eager to transform their characteristics to his music. So therefore, understanding the fantasy in novels in by German romantics is as essential to understand his music. Tell me what you love about the work of Robert Schumann. What appeals to you musically about his work? I love those sudden changes in our characters because I think performing, it's about how I deal with expectations of the audience. So I can make audience like be surprised by sudden changes of mood and it's like I cannot lose my attention while I perform or while I am listening to his music because it, it's all, oh, how can I say, it's all about out of my expectations and like sudden changes. And I also love his harmonies. And for me, so it's like, uh, so when I perform his music, it's like I read like fantasy novels. And also I can feel that it's, uh, full of love. To understand human's music is very important to understand his personal life, uh, like his love story with Clara. We can find very interesting stories from his diaries or the letters between Clara and Robert. So, for example, his first piano sonata, that's dedicated to Clara. And that piece was written at the time when Friedrich Bick 
so who is Clara's father, kept Robert and Clara apart until Robert should win the right to marry Clara. Because at that time, Robert was not a successful musician. So Clara was a very successful musician. She was like prodigy, toured Europe. So <laughs> her father didn't want them to marry. And so like works composed at that time are filled with ciphers and codes which Clara could understand. For example, the second movement of the first piano sonata is an aria in which Robert Schumann used the melody from his song to Anna. And the text of that song describes a man dying on the battlefield thinking about his love in his home country. So Robert was trying to say that he is thinking about Clara like the man in the song. On your website, you have a recital of Schumann's Chrysleriana, written in 1838, a couple of years before we got married to Clara. And I love the juxtaposition of Robert Schumann allegedly writing to Clara and saying, I want to dedicate it to you. Yes, to you and nobody else. And then you will smile so sweetly when you discover yourself in it. And Clara's alleged response, listen, Robert, couldn't you just once compose something brilliant, easily understandable and without inscriptions, a completely coherent piece, not too long and not too short? I'd so much like to have something of yours to play that's specifically intended for the public. So (laughs) who do you have the most sympathy with, Clara or Robert? Actually, like the one you just read reminds me of his diary. And another piece I recorded for my solo album is Humoresque. And Humoresque, uh, he wrote in his diary that I composed this piece and I was just thinking about you for a few days. And I just sit, uh, I was sitting on the piano just thinking about you, smile and just cry at the same time. All about Clara, I think. Well, I'm sure like many women in classical music, you feel something of a grievance with history's focus on the men of classical music. They've all but overlooked the incredible contributions by female composers. And of course, within the Romantic era, there's the work of Clara Schumann, Robert's wife, and Fanny Mendelssohn, long overshadowed by her younger brother, Felix. How, as a teacher and a performer, how do we bring these female composers out of the shadows? Oh, that's a good question. So like when I was a student and then when I was in the class of piano literature or like music history, and we learned about the standard repertoire and it was a few, few years ago, but it was a little difficult for me to learn the pieces written by women composers. It was not included in the standard repertoire. And I think these days there was an improvement and also there is an improvement so uh it's a little better but i think we still need more so also your question reminds me of the gender balance study that i saw on the website a few months ago and that gender balance study was done by uk record label drama musica and then they conducted a gender balance study of the 2019 and 2020 orchestra season of 15 top orchestras. And the result was startling because only 8% or like 8.2% of the total concerts include at least one piece by a women composer. Only like 8% or so. Well, it's not that startling, unfortunately. That doesn't surprise me. 
Yes. But I mean, it isn't only female composers that are overshadowed. So this past year has really shone a light on how lacking in diversity the classical canon is. Again, it's the white men who get remembered and heralded by history, whilst the black and brown composers get almost completely pushed aside. And of course, bringing these composers into programs and repertoires means that performers need to study them, which means their professors need to know their works. And so it's kind of this circle that goes round and round. So how how optimistic are you that diversity is going to come to classical music stages? Yes, actually, I'm striving for uh, learning more repertoires, especially Compositions written by women composers. So during the pandemic, uh, so my like many of my concerts got canceled. So <laughs> that was a great time for me to learn those new repertoire. So I'm currently researching works by women composers, especially Fanny Mendelssohn and especially Cecil Shaminat. And I'm trying to include at least one of those uh, works that I've learned in my solo recitals coming up. So actually. The one concert uh, that's coming up, so I'm going to go to Meyer Hess concert series in Chicago in May. And I included Clara Schumann's work. And I'm going there in December as well. And I'm going to perform Shaminat uh, in December. So I'm going, I'm trying very hard to include at least one competition by women composers. And when I have time, I invest my time to learn those new repertoires. And I also give my students those pieces. And actually, from pedagogical view, there are many pieces that students should learn and should, students can learn a lot about like musical expressions from them. So I call those pieces as like hidden gems. So I know you've been doing research on these two female composers, Cecile Chaminade and Fanny Mendelssohn, and you're tracking down and researching unknown works. How do you find unknown works? Where are they? <laughs> That's a good question. Sometimes I just Google it. And and then I went to, so I visited the website IMSLP, which I can download those like scores. But sometimes it's, difficult for me to find those scores so then i have to contact the like person who is specialized in researching like those composers yes that must be tough i mean i guess they all they maybe exist only on paper in a library somewhere then you've got to find the person that knows where the score is in the library (laughs) that it even exists in the first place so it's tricky well i'd love to listen to some of your piano playing before we close so tell us what we're going to listen to and what this work signifies for you so we are going to listen to the uh, last variation of Epic Variations. So this is Robert Schumann's very first published work. And as you said in the beginning, he composed exclusively for piano until 1840. And this was written in 1830 around that time. So he was like 20 years old. <laughs> and this variations, I think this piece is special and unique and different from other compositions around that time because most composers took the theme from the famous operas or famous melodies at the time, but he used his own melody. And he made up that melody from each letter, A, B, E, G, G. Then it's dedicated to Abek lady. Her name is like Abek. And actually, this person is imaginary person. <laughs> yeah, so I think this is a part of his fantasy. 
Well, let's take a listen. final variation of Robert Schumann's ABEG Variations played by my guest, the award-winning international concert pianist Dr. Heijin Cho. Heijin Cho's new album of piano works by Robert Schumann is out this summer and you can find it on all the online platforms including Spotify, Apple Music, iTunes and others. You can also check out her website Heijin Cho Pianist which is H-Y-E-J-I-N-C-H-O pianist.com to hear and watch recordings of her playing. She is absolutely mesmerizing. Dr. Heijin Cho, thank you so much for taking time to chat today. Thank you so much, Diana. And that is it for another week. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm. Or you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thank you to my guest today, Gary Cadwallader, 
Regina Willard, Byron von Rosenberg, and Heijin Cho. Thanks also to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song, Restless Heart, opens and closes the show. You can find more of her music on Spotify and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Mid-Missouri. Mid-Missouri.